Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. We are days away from the commencement of the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics, and with the collision of sports, politics and COVID, this is proving to be an Olympiad to remember. Here to discuss diplomatic boycotts, COVID contingencies and potentially more sport than I'm comfortable with is Associate Professor Jeff Dixon, Director of the Centre for Sport and Social Impact at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. It's good to be here, Matt. Now, I'm familiar with the concept of sport. I'm generally in the same vicinity of it occasionally, but you are very much and always the expert in this podcast, okay? Just as you're uncomfortable with talking about sort of the sporting dimension of this, I'm, I'm somewhat out of my lane talking about the political dimension, uh, but together we'll get through it. Okay, so uh, there's 90 nations uh, that are competing in these games, and a handful of these, Australia included, are diplomatically boycotting the games. So what does a diplomatic boycott mean? Does that essentially putting somebody on the warning list without completely pulling out of an event. Yeah, something like that. Uh, basically, the diplomatic boycott is, is that a, a country uh, makes a conscious and public decision to not send its uh, diplomatic representatives to an event. Yeah. Uh, at an event like the Olympic Games, there's all sorts of posturing and political statesmanship sort of going on. And it's uh, by convention that heads of state and or their delegates, so think ambassadors, etc etc are invited to attend and watch basically and the diplomatic boycott is when a country basically says thanks for the invitation but actually we're not going to turn up Mm -hmm. and so this diplomatic boycott is different from the high profile political boycotts that have plagued previous olympics most noticeably 1980 and 1984 where we were caught up in a situation where the athletes were essentially forced to boycott the countries, the governments put sufficient pressure on their national Olympic committees to ensure that they didn't send teams. And sometimes in Australia, that National Olympic Committee pressure extended down to the national sports organisation where they were placed under considerable pressure not to send athletes. Mm. Long story short, what it basically means is that some... uh, Diplomats and politicians won't be sitting in the, the box, so to speak, yeah. uh, at the opening ceremony. But the good news, of course, is that the athletes will be there. Okay. So, I mean, what's different between you know those sort of Olympics and the ones that you just talked about in 84, did you say? What was the reason yeah, for the boycotts well, in those? You, well, if you go back to probably 1976 was the first of a sort of a, a series of Olympic boycotts. A significant number of African nations boycotted the 1976 Montreal Olympics, mm in protest that New Zealand rugby team had been touring South Africa against the Glen Eagles Agreement and the apartheid regime and the like. Yeah, okay. Uh, 1980, a Soviet invasion of Afghanistan triggered a number of Western nations, US-led, to boycott the 1980 Moscow Olympics. Mm. And 1984, if you like, was essentially the retaliation boycott where many of the Soviet bloc countries decided to boycott the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, really for no other reason than you didn't turn up to our party in 1980. (laughs) So that was a classic tit for tat. And over the years, there's been a, a small number of boycotts essentially of what you might call non-core actors to the Olympic movement. Mm -hmm. But 76 through 84 was certainly significant. Okay, so so a diplomatic boycott, though, is kind of a a soft boycott then by the sound of it. Yeah, it's kind of like the Australian audience might understand this, the Clayton's boycott. It's Mm. a boycott you have when you're not having a boycott. It's a boycott, I think, of the lowest level. Yeah. 
you know, the question we can ask is how much attention is it garnering? How much impact is it making? The answer to those is kind of going to be in the not much category. Yeah. But when athletes are forced to boycott, I don't think many athletes choose to boycott, mm-hmm. but if they're essentially forced to boycott, that's when the alarm bells uh, really start to ring. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, it's it's making a statement mostly about the Chinese detainment, the imprisonment of the Uyghur people, also towards uh, actions in Tibet Yes. and just general human rights issues, problems that countries have had with China in recent history, but this gives the opportunity to make a statement. Yeah, when you host the Olympic Games, essentially, you know, the good news is the spotlight shines on you. Mm, the bad that, news that, is that, the spotlight shines on the you. The bad news <laughs> is the spotlight shines on you and it highlights lots of wrinkles in the face, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And um, you're right there that this diplomatic boycott is underpinned by what we might call human rights concerns. Uh, there are the Uyghurs, there's the curtailing of democracy in Hong Kong, suppressing Tibetan culture, menacing Taiwan. And all of that points to, a, I guess, a somewhat broad category of uh, geopolitical tensions. Mm, it's, mm. it's a bit of a hot spot at the moment. And this gives the opportunity for you know, countries to express their concern, mm. their dissatisfaction with China and their actions or lack of actions, depending on how you want to define it. And it basically is designed to just place a little bit of pressure on China. And it's a just a way of saying we don't like what you're doing and we're drawing a line in the sand on the matter. The artist uh, Ai Weiwei was asked about these diplomatic boycotts that are going on and he told the Associated Press, the West boycott is futile and pointless. China does not care about it at all. And I think a couple of Chinese ambassadors maybe came out saying, well, okay, you guys weren't invited anyway. We didn't (laughs) invite you diplomatically. So is this statement more so for the West to see that this is happening and China doesn't seem to really care about this kind of stance at all, do they? There's a saying that I like or that I hear a lot in in sort of political circles and and it's one that I think's got some merit. It says that all politics is local. Yeah. So to an extent, you know, China is playing to its local audience and so too is what I'll call the West. Does the West really think that these actions are going to make a difference to how the Chinese view the Chinese government, Mm. that's a long shot. Neither do I think that in a couple of weeks' time we're going to be talking about a change of Chinese government policy towards the Uyghurs, Tibet, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, there's there's no small amount of political theatre going on at the moment, and I think both sets of actors, if you like, are playing to their local audiences. One of China's biggest challenges at the moment is its national image. So how is it using the Winter Olympics then to its advantage? We've said that the spotlight can have a disadvantage and put a focus on the negatives, but how are they trying to use it to the positives? I think there's what they're trying to do, then there is what they are succeeding in doing. Mm. And I suspect, you know, where I sit here in Melbourne, Australia, it's probably not having a lot of success or impact. But again, there are other audiences around the world to whom I think the Chinese might be playing. And it may not necessarily be the West. Mm. You know, the, the West is a cornerstone. It's a big chunk of the world, but it's not all of the world. And China's diplomatic strategies in recent years has been to garner support from many smaller nations. You know, think Belt and Road, you know, foreign investment and, and you like. They might be preaching to countries that we may not think about on a daily basis. Yeah. So in terms of their national image, I think they're trying to use the Olympics to change it, but you know that is a hard road to push. The concept that is relevant to this conversation is this notion of soft power. 
where sport in particular is capable of changing how people perceive a country and hosting major events and putting on a high quality major event like the Olympic Games is a way of making your city, your nation seem attractive. Mm. And and the cornerstone of soft power is that it involves shaping the preferences of others through appeal and attraction. Soft power sits at the opposite of hard power, which is all about trade sanctions and ultimately tanks, missiles and bombs. Submarines for us. Submarines. (laughs) Um, So soft power is a way of positioning yourself as being likable and basically people and or countries that are liked tend to have this sort of, in New Zealand you would have called it mana, this sort of aura, this status that you can exploit and get people to do things that you want them to do. So there's no doubt that China hosting this event is all part of a wider soft power yeah. Uh, strategy. Yeah. Just on that audience perception then, if they're not so much targeting a Western audience and trying to increase their national image there, are they turning inwards with this Olympic Games? I noticed that they're marketing it very much as trying to increase winter sports to their domestic audience, yeah. for example. And G recently told uh, the ISC president, Thomas back, ice and snow are also as valuable as gold and silver. So what do they hope by marketing this towards a domestic audience? There's a couple of things in amongst that. The first thing that they might be trying to do is demonstrate China's position on the global stage mm. and Beijing as a, as a world-class city. They're two obvious things that they would be preaching to their local community. Look at how powerful we are. Beijing is the only city in the world to host both the Winter and Summer Olympics. Yeah, This is unique, and it's bragging rights. We're unique. We're wonderful. Uh, So that's the type of message that I expect to be shared throughout the local Chinese community. Mm. Other rationales, you know, over the last 15 to 20 years, the Chinese government put a lot more emphasis on sport participation. Typically, the Olympics were all about a place to showcase the quality of our nation. Top of the medal tally, we are the best at athletics, we are the best at swimming, we're the best at sport. Doesn't that demonstrate the value of communism? That's the classic Cold War mentality that the Russians and the East Germans you know, introduced through the 60s and the 70s. Mm. So they want to demonstrate the capability of China and therefore the value of Chinese values and, and their system in terms of making their nation great. Yeah. In amongst all of that, they've also put a lot more emphasis on sports participation and physical activity sort of at the non-elite level. Uh, they've recognised that they do have an obesity problem and a physical inactivity problem. The development of the Chinese middle class, if you like, you know, they're more likely to be in cars now than on push bikes. Yeah. And that's a change that we've seen over the last 20 years that once upon a time Chinese sports policy was almost wholly and solely premised on elite sport. But now there's this shift in sports circles. We call it the trickle-down effect, the notion that showcasing elite athletes and their success inspires a younger generation or a non-active generation mm. to get involved. So as a result of this being more of a uh, an Olympic for the domestic audience for them, the big reason of that, I guess, is the COVID pandemic. China has maintained a zero-tolerance approach to COVID, coming down particularly hard on even the smallest outbreaks in the lead up to the games. So how much of a threat does the virus pose to the Olympics and what preparations have they been making? 
there's no doubt that, say, two years ago, the Winter Olympics was under threat, just as Tokyo was under threat. But I think that the COVID situation is more or less under control, Mm. um, which is not to say that it doesn't exist anymore. You know, the Olympics are going ahead next week. There's nothing that's going to get in the way of that now. But one of the reasons that it is going ahead is because of the extensive, you know, biosecurity bubbles and protocols that have been developed for athletes, officials, volunteers, spectators, journalists and the like. The most noticeable one is, as you just referred, international tourists basically aren't permitted and and anyone that you see in in the crowd is going to be Chinese. Now, that's not going to change the way we look at the Olympics or, or our enjoyment levels of it, you know, to have that many people in the modern world converge on a city, to me, it's almost unavoidable. Mm. But by the same token, it's still going to be embarrassing when it happens. Well, the extent of the bubble, as you put it, that they've set up is quite interesting. So they've got athletes, volunteers, anybody who's associated with the games essentially segregated and not allowed out of, I'm going to call it the Olympic village, but, you know, the Olympic bubble. And the audience who are watching it can go into a venue and can go out of a venue, but can never intermingle with the people who are participating in the games on an organisational level or any of the athletes or anything like that. And that level of kind of biosecurity control on it. To some extent, those biosecurity controls aren't fundamentally different from what I'd call normal security. Yeah. You know, at an event like this, you and I can't make a choice to interact with the athletes, but Mm. the athletes can make a choice to interact with us. They are not typically locked into the Olympic Village. You know, I think back to the Sydney Olympics. If they wanted to walk through downtown Sydney or yeah. go watch other events, mm. they were allowed to. But that type of extracurricular activity, so to speak, I can't imagine that's going to be allowed. No, no, definitely um, not. You know, the athlete experience uh, will be different at these Olympics, no doubt. But yeah. it, it will still be an Olympic experience. There's also, I guess, kind of bragging rights. I mean... Japan had their Olympics a year ago, and after that event, they did genomic sequencing around Tokyo and found out that they had no COVID escape from the athletes and from those participating in the Games into the general community. And if Japan can manage that and China can't, I gather that China won't be too happy about that fact. So there's a lot of stake there. Yeah, that complements my my sort of embarrassing theory, that as inevitable as it is, it will still be embarrassing when it happens because, you know, to take on your point, it does provide bragging rights that if you can put on this Olympic Games and get away with it in mm. the sense of not contributing to COVID transmission, I think you actually are entitled to bragging rights if that occurs. So what do you believe will be the experience then of, of visitors to China for the Olympics, whether they be competing athletes or officials or media covering it? Because you've got that biosecurity in place and you've also just got a, a level of general security and monitoring, which is unheard of in a lot of countries. Yeah, Olympic environments are a security-intense environment. You've got COVID, you've got the normal Olympic security stuff, for want of a better word, and then you've sort of got, depending on your view of the world and your view of China, that probably ratchets up a little bit given that it's in China. Mm. So when I think about what the Olympic experience might be, you know, I'll start with words like foreboding and somewhat intimidating mm. uh, for all those reasons that we just discussed. I think it will be less enjoyable than other Olympics for all concerned. But here's the thing, athletes, coaches, they can't 
pick and choose which Olympics they go to. These are very rare events. Yeah. It's the big enchilada, so to speak. Yeah. And this is what athletes have been striving for for a, a dozen or more years. Yeah. You know, for the Australian athletes, the Australian Olympic Committee is a very capable organisation. As an athlete, you go under the auspices of the Australian Olympic Committee and that they're good at providing a, a context that, that is, you know, ensuring that you are safe, <laughs> well-fed, et cetera, et cetera, and that you are feeling comfortable so that you can perform at your best. And this is not the Australian Olympic Committee's first rodeo. You know, been at every Olympic game since 1896, they've got the Tokyo experience, under their belt. So for the Australia's Winter Olympic athletes, I think the Australian Olympic Committee will leave no stone unturned that they're safe, happy and perform well. Mm. I still think if you're an athlete or a coach, the, the Olympic Games is still going to be the funnest time that you're going to have in your life, you know, for want of a better term. And despite all the COVID restrictions, et cetera, et cetera, I'm sure all the athletes are going to come back and say it was a great time and yeah. I'm glad that I did it. Do you think that the global audience who are watching on their television sets are going to see a, a different Olympics? No, I don't. I'll call it inside the ropes, which is, you know, the athlete's sporting field, if you like, the rink, the downhill slopes. That's all going to look the same on TV. Mm. We don't watch the Olympics here in Australia. We watch Channel 7's version of the Olympics. Yeah, uh, It's a very filtered approach. You know, we see it through the producer's eyes and a highly mediated event. So what we see on TV, I think, is going to be largely the same. You know, at a next level back, there's sort of a current affairs perspective, and then there's the news perspective. Yeah. And those three things will operate on three slightly different levels where, you know, some of the issues that we discussed in this podcast today will feature at that current affairs and news reporting. But in terms of the specific sports reporting, it's still going to be about who won and lost and what, why did they win and lose. Yeah. Okay, then. So so what are a few of the things that you were looking out for during the Olympics when they begin this weekend? As a sports management academic, I tend to get drawn to a, a couple of things which, you know, sort of reflect my teaching and research interests. You know, I tend to start with who's advertising on the television. Oh, really? Yeah. Who are the official broadcast partners, the advertisers? I try to look at what are they trying to achieve and who are they trying to talk to yeah. via their association with the Olympics and with the broadcaster in, in this instance, Channel 7. Mm. So that's mm. sort of the first thing because you sit there and watch the Olympics and you get bombarded with these commercials. Mm. Um, so as a sports management, sports marketing academic, that's what I look like. I will look to see which advertisements feature an Olympic athlete or which are sort of don't feature a Winter Olympic athlete or which companies have made that extra investment to have Winter Olympic themed commercials yeah. as opposed to just a standard car commercial, so to speak. I did read yesterday that networks in America in particular were finding it a bit hard to find you know, high-level advertisers yeah. for these Winter Olympics, not just because of their Winter Olympics and they get less focus and prestige than the Summer Olympics, yeah. rightly or wrongly, but also the fact that it's in China like last year, there were big corporations coming up with dedicated Japan-themed advertisements to celebrate the Olympics and to focus on Japan and really promote the country. And this time around, that sort of prestige level kind of thing isn't happening. Have you, have you witnessed that at this point? I, I haven't followed it closely enough to know, but, yeah. uh, but I know that every sponsor will take a minute <laughs> at least you know to contemplate all of the sensitivities that we've discussed today yeah yeah and uh, I think they'll have a, you know, a couple of what I'll call you know risk management ideas up their sleeve should things go pear-shaped I think that's that's highly unlikely mm. but every 
Olympic sponsor, every you know, advertiser on TV. Now, they're not necessarily the same people, mind you. Mm-hmm. The people who sponsor our Winter Olympic team may not be the same companies that sponsor the broadcast of the Olympics. And that leads down to a second thing that I, that I always keep an eye out for is the ambush marketing. <laughs> those, those companies that aren't official sponsors but make you think that they might be. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's a quadrennial battle of cat and mouse yeah. between the official sponsors and the non-Olympic sponsors. Ah. Um, but yeah, corporate Australia will have done their homework on this event. It'll just be interesting to see who shows up, so to speak. Yeah. I'll also be keeping an eye out just for athletes who walk the tightrope of uh, International Olympic Committee Rule 50, which is essentially states no kind of demonstration or political, religious or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues or other areas. So this speaks to the idea of uh, athlete activism. Yeah. And uh, the, the IOC picks and chooses when it wants to be political. It likes to be political on its terms and not on someone else's terms. Mm. But at the same time, athlete activism is such an important concept these days that they actually have to allow the athletes to be somewhat active, not too much. You know, there's a time and a place and all of that sort of stuff. So I'll just be keen to see what athletes push the envelope, so to speak, and who they target with their activism. Mm. And um, yeah, I'll be pretty curious to see if anyone has a what I'll call an anti-Chinese message and that might be something as simple as you know help the Uyghurs will an athlete have a go at that what the responses might be from the various stakeholders yeah yeah in addition to all of the above I think we're going to see lots of exciting sport and I hope that I hope that the Australians <laughs> do well just before we go you've got a MOOC to promote on sport diplomacy Yes, we do. The Centre for Sport and Social Impact at La Trobe University has partnered with the Department of Foreign Affairs of Trade to develop a massive open online course on sport diplomacy. And the thinking here is that Australia as a nation has has an asset, if you like, in its sporting reputation. Mm-hmm. And that as our athletes and officials travel overseas, they are essentially unofficial diplomats. They are representing Australia. And the aim here is to better equip athletes, sport managers and team officials with some skills regarding sport diplomacy. Mm. The MOOC will be officially launched on February 21, but I'm pleased to give your listeners a, a heads up if they just simply Google Sport Diplomacy MOOC, they will land on the page and uh, we invite everyone to have a look at it. We, we have some uh, content from some of Australia's leading athletes, Ian Thorpe, Steve Monaghetti, James Tompkins, the Olympic rower. They provide their insights as to the role of you know sport diplomacy and what it's like to represent Australia yeah. on the international stage. And uh, we think that it's a uh, a great opportunity for everyone just to uh, better understand that link between you know sport politics and, and this thing called sport diplomacy and essentially it's enhances Australia's soft power capabilities through sport great okay that sounds like a, a worthwhile thing to have a look at we'll, we'll put links to it on our social media as well fantastic okay thanks for your time it's been my pleasure You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.